Come in. Here we go again. Up early, feed the dog, out the door, traffic, at the office, boss in some kind of mood today, no time for lunch, annoying co-worker, no time to relax, bedtime. Then we gotta do it all again? Uh, no way. Because the best way to break up the mundane every day is to play. At Wild Rose Casino and Resort. Slots, tables, sports, and a whole lot of perks when you join and play with your club wild card. So, let's play. Wild Rose Casino and Resort, Clinton. Does your financial advisor take the time to really listen to you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situation changes? When you work with Edward Jones, they focus on what's important to you. You'll work together and use an established process to create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And they'll partner with you to help your strategy stay on track. Visit edwardjones.com or stop by the office of Todd Nash in Coralville, Jeff Rudolph, or Scott McGill in Iowa City, or Travis Whitmore in North Liberty. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Hello there, and welcome to the Hawkeye Hotspot podcast here on Hawk Fanatic. I am your host, Rob Howe, joined as always by Scott Docterman of The Athletic, recording on Thursday, August the 25th, also known as Nine Days Before Kickoff, uh, at 9 10 a.m. Central Time. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, uh, Edward Jones, Wild Rose Casino, Systems Unlimited, Street Maintenance, and a brand new sponsor. We added another one, Scott, Ariza, Asian restaurant and bar here in Iowa City. So uh, I have not tried them yet. Uh, Owner of Hawk Fanatic, Pat Hardy, swears by them, says they're the best Asian food in town. So I'm going to have to check it out. Have you been there yet? No, I haven't. Uh, are they related to the, to the putt god, Matt Ariza? You know, San Diego <laughs> no, but State. that would be a great <laughs> story. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, <laughs> you know, then Tory Taylor can, well, he can't can't profit from his NIL. So I was going to say he could get some NIL from that, but he can't even profit from it. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to try it because we're always looking for good Asian food in the, in the Tri-City area here. Yeah, I have to check them out. Hopefully, uh, some of the, the listeners check them out. out. That's Ariza. Uh, I believe they're over by Village Inn, uh, the corner there of Highway 6 and Riverside. So, easy to find. Um, I've had a, a evening and morning of hitting the mute button on my Twitter um, based on based – on, a story that Scott reported yesterday on an update on the uh, trial case, court case of what seven former players um, suing uh, some of the coaches on the Iowa football program. This dates back to uh, the story in 2020 of the racial bias uh, that was found by Hush Blackwell uh, in their investigation of the program. This is kind of another. Uh, tentacle of that. Um, this development, obviously, good for the Iowa coaches, Scott. I have been crazy busy this week. Um, I work for like sev- seven different websites, and uh, high school sports has started, and that's one of my 
my job. So that's kind of been busy. I have not had a chance to read through this yet. So I'm going to let you kind of educate the listeners as to what uh, came out yesterday. Yeah, there are, uh, there were uh, several documents and uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents that were released over the last few days. And uh, one of which is that Brian Ferentz has called for a summary judgment in his favor, which would effectively dismiss the case and uh, probably prevent it from being refiled or appealed. And uh, it's, uh, I would say in his 66 page document outlining every single uh, basically going over the ch- the charges leveled against him by the set now seven defendants. It originally was 13 um, that most, if not all of them have been refuted. And most of them, if not all of them have been refuted by their own testimony under oath and, and the depositions. And uh, there have been a lot of allegations thrown um, and reported. And uh, the majority of which have now been kind of refuted under oath. So this is a, this is that kind of critical moment that that we weren't sure we would reach, which was would Iowa be willing to fight these allegations or would they be interested in settling before it came to this point? But uh, you know some of the you know most of the accusations of whether Brian Ferentz described uh, you know anybody in any kind of negative terms related to race. Um, were not validated under uh, the depositions. And uh, that is kind of damning um, for the plaintiffs. And I would say, uh, you know, maybe the one incident that was brought up the the most that was most discussed had dealt with Jonathan Parker, um, as we all know, his moment in infamy, I guess, in the Gator Bowl or the whatever bowl it was called then. Hawk, uh, Hawk Slayer Bowl, uh, <laughs> tactics, that's what it was. Um, and, uh, and so there was one point where Brian kicked him out of practice after he performed a drill incorrectly and told him to effing do it himself. And uh, Parker denies that he said effing, so, uh, but he admits the insubordination. He ended up apologizing for the moment. He went to Kirk Ferentz and recorded a conversation he had with Kirk after he met with him on that. And there was nothing really ever brought up in that about any kind of racial dis- the discussion. Um, he ended up bringing, a, and so his reference to a black dumbass, which was kind of the, I don't know if smoking gun is certainly not the right word or phrase for it, but certainly is. A, this is Jonathan a, Parker's accusation of Brian Ferentz saying this to him. That is correct. correct. Yes. yes. And uh, there was just nothing in that recording, side recording, that accuses him of that. And nobody, whether it's through affidavits uh, filed by some of the, you know some of the assistants who were in that vicinity, including Phil Parker or any of the players, backed up that that those words. And and to the point where in his call for a summary judgment, you know Brian Ferentz says in that drill there were close to fifty players. And almost all, I think all 10 coaches were in, in that vicinity. And had he said something like that, he would have instantly been called out. It would have been leaked out. It would have been recorded. And uh, and he would have been vilified for that when it happened. Um, so that th- there's a lot with Akram. Um, as you can imagine, uh, the, the parking situation, 
And really the description was that there was no, that the, the parking area was um, ADA. It, it wasn't, uh, was a coach's parking. It was um, handicap parking. And that's what he got yelled at for. Uh, so there are, and then there are incidents where you're, we're talking about whether the, the car didn't work for him and Brian's saying, what do I have to do with that? And, um, you know, there, there are all kinds of different parts of that discussion, but, but largely it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of, I don't know if, you know, half truths would probably be the best way, um, to describe it. So I, I think that right now in this case, it's probably headed in Brian Ferentz's, um, in, in his favor. That would be the, my des best description of where I think things stand. Yeah, good outline there by Scott. Appreciate him going through that for us. You can check it out if you want to read through all these documents. Scott has them on The Athletic, and also you can find them on his Twitter feed. How many pages, Scott? Well, the, the two that I, I put out there, um, you know, and basically because we just decided to, to wait to write a, a full story until after, you know, whether the judgment's been, right. you know, accepted or declined. So instead of leaving it, I ended up posting a 66-page call for a summary judgment in 466 pages of the appendix, uh, which included the depositions and allegations and and also, um, you know, many of the, uh, you know, the, the accusations and stuff. So uh, that way I just kind of left it, you know, that, hey, everybody can read this for themselves and, and decide for themselves. I don't necessarily want to offer too many opinions uh, because I think at this stage, it's not about opinion. And maybe it was two years ago. At this stage, it's about facts. And I think in some ways that, it's it's looking like the defense is probably going to win this case. Yeah, and but Scott's right, and I'm kind of in the same boat. You kind of wait to see how it all plays out, and then you write about it. I haven't written about this, you know, stage by stage from when, you know, there were defendants added since Seth Wallace was added. I just, you know, I retweet stuff and stuff and do that stuff, but I'm not going to follow the case, you know, stage by stage, let it run to its completion. I think the important thing for me, Scott, is what you hope for in cases like this is that the truth comes out, whatever that is. You know, mm -hmm. I know people have agendas and people have, you know, sides they want to take and things like that. For me personally, I just want the truth. I mean, because it's a he said, he said. So really, mm -hmm. you just let it go. Let the process go through. Let the, you know, the case play itself out. And then whatever comes of it, comes of it. And that's what we just like. And there's a part of me that's like, with this case being attached to what happened back in 2020, I think maybe they're too closely tied together for me that this is separate to me. This is seven guys that have their case against the Iowa coaches, whereas the internal um, report that showed racial bias back in whatever that was, 2019. Um, the one that involved James Daniels and then the Hush Blackwell showed there was racial bias. That was real. And that was important. And I don't, I don't think that this case, however it goes, you know, if, if Iowa wins the case, great. That shows that 
these guys weren't being truthful. And I think that hurts the other people that were and that contributed to those earlier reports. And I'm not saying that this case is over. It's just Brian Ferentz has requested the summary judgment. We'll see what happens. But if it does turn out that the case is dismissed, it almost gives people the see, gotcha. There wasn't really anything going on, but there was. So that's kind of where I am at this. But ultimately, the truth, I mean, there's a big leap between being racially biased and calling somebody a dumb black guy, Mm -hmm. you know? So there's two things can be true, I guess, is what I'm saying. No question. I mean, that's the frustrating part of this is, you know, pun not intended that everybody wants to make it black and white when in fact it's always many shades of gray. And, uh, and I think in this situation, that's true. I think they both can be true, which is that Iowa fostered perhaps unconscious situation of racial bias and uh, to what levels, I think it depends on the person and, and how do you, meet and greet and change the culture to ensure that it's a welcoming culture for people of all backgrounds and for some people to learn more about the other background both ways that 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 could be helpful and beneficial I think largely they have done some of that which is a good sign because we would have seen way more attrition we would have seen players really speaking out against the, the staff and some of the things they've done way more so than we've seen however that what this felt like at the time, unfortunately, and what it may end up being in a court of law is somewhat of a money grab. And that when you've got people suing Brian Ferentz for millions of dollars, specifically Akram sued him for $20 million. And Javon Foy, I think was $150,000. And even though- Is that the spectrum? Was Foy the low end and- Akram the high end? I, I think that's the spectrum. I'd have to okay. go back to, to go through each and every one, but each of them sued him for something different, if I might, you know, monetarily. That I think in some ways that, you know, it does devalue the claims made, the legitimate claims made by players in the past who felt like they were devalued. And I think that, you know, we, we did see that once this lawsuit was filed, that there was a separation from some of the players who felt like they were wrong, but felt this was not the right course. And then these players. And the unfortunate part is it just, you know, it it does devalue the discussion. People want to say, oh, there was nothing going on. See, it was all made up or exaggerated. And then, you know, then other people are looking at other parts of this and, you know, well, that they're, you know, a machine at Iowa. And I, I think it, again, my view, I've tried to really stay in the middle on this, has been that I think the Hush Blackwell backs up that there were some situations that needed to be corrected and addressed and addressed in significant fashion. And I think the lawsuit probably went too, way too far. And when you see some, um, how would I say it? Uh, you, you see some recanting of previous allegations through depositions and testimony in those depositions that I think what it does is it suggests that this was a a situation where people were looking for a payday as, as taking advantage of this, because this lawsuit didn't happen until everything happened in June. 
And then there was the, you know, settle for $20 million, fire Brian Ferentz, fire Kirk Ferentz, fire Gary Barda. Um, we knew that wasn't going to happen. So they wanted this out there. And so I, I think in a lot of cases, um, what we need to do, you know, I, I we want to wait for the judgment. If the judgment comes down, then I think, you know, then that does bring credence because the judge has allowed a lot of this to go forward in the past. So I think that it does bring credence to the, the defense. And, um, but then, you know, but then if it's allowed to continue through trial, then I think that there is a strong chance that the plaintiffs might win. If, if the judge does not dismiss it. So it, it all, and, I, and I'm not a legal expert. I have covered trials in the past, a long time ago, but I, I think in this case, um, it does kind of give us a North Star in how the, the case is shaking, shaping up. So there's seven guys in this, right, Scott? And mm-hmm. two of them, it seems like from what you've said, and again, I haven't read this, that yeah. Wadley and uh, Parker's uh, accusations are kind of falling apart a little bit here. But, but what about the other five? Because, I mean, so if two guys, I, you know more illegal than I do. If two guys are found to be full of shit, what does that mean for the other five guys? Well, the other five guys never really had any direct interaction with Brian Ferentz. They were just kind of lumped into this lawsuit. I okay. Mean, you know, when you're talking about Aaron Menz or uh, Darian Cooper and, you know, and Darian, who I, I, I really liked. I thought he was one of the most funny players, ex-players I've ever seen. Yeah, in unfortunate he got hurt. I think he could have yeah. been a good player. You know, and there was one game, I think it was in 2013, he mentioned where he had surgery and they threw him out there in a situation. He couldn't even run, but he's out there playing. And then the videotape showed him running, you know, stuff like that, where it's like, yeah, that's that's hard to back up that claim if you're out there doing it, um, you know. And, then, and that wouldn't seem to be ro- racially. I guess you could say yeah. it's racially motivated if they're only, you know, if they're only forcing, uh, you know, black players to play hurt. But it's I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And and that's kind of the, the point that yes, there was a you know a, a yelling match. You know, Jonathan Parker and Kirk Fer- or Kirk, Brian Ferentz, um, but anybody can lob an accusation of saying something and especially if it's something along those lines and then it turns into being, um, you know, a big deal. And, and so if that, if that's not proven, you know, how could you, you know, if, if there was audio tape of him, if he called him that and you saw him even mouthing the words, then that's completely different than calling a, a say a dumb MF. <laughs> you know, because yeah. he calls everybody a dumbass, and maybe he shouldn't do that. And I think that's been proven. But you know, still, um, I, I think in some ways we're we're looking at um, the case is probably not real strong right now. Marcel Jolly was another one. Okay, and he he worked underneath uh, under uh, Brian for a year, but a lot of it was, you know, I mean, you know, like here's. Here's a, a thing, like he said, you know, Chris White um, was his kind of confidant and uh, former running backs coach, former running backs coach and stuff. And, you know, and, and Brian never talked to any of them about his hair. And, and according to this part of the the call was Jolly recanted his answer 
when he accused Brian Ferentz of using a speaker in front of the team to criticize Derek Mitchell's hair. So he recanted that, even though that was part of the complaint, um, you know, that a, a complaint of he that he said uh, Brian Ferentz called Michael Ojemudia a dumb black ass when Ojemudia hit Matt Vandenberg hard during practice. Um, the videotape was re, was reviewed. Um, there was no audio. Uh, there are many players. He didn't even observe Jolly being present in there. And he said nothing to Ojemudia. And he did talk to Phil Parker about the violence of the hit. Uh, but, you know, he denies that he called him a dumb black ass. So, you know, again, if, if you can't prove it, you can say it, you can accuse somebody of it. That doesn't make it true. And, uh, and so I think that's really what, you know, and considering most of these guys, I believe, except maybe uh, Foy graduated. So it really didn't affect their opportunities to participate. And Jonathan Parker does, he claims that the program tried to persuade him and ultimately did persuade him to avoid going to dentistry school. But, you know, that's a choice that he made. You know, I mean, Michael Ochimudia became an engineer off his time. So there's, there's some really, uh, some fascinating discussion, no question. But I think when it comes to the, the directness of this case, it's hard to kind of say that this case is going to continue much longer. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. And again, from my perspective, it's, you know, there were a bunch of allegations and claims made via social media back in the summer of 2020. These guys, these seven guys are part of that. Um, but to me anyway, and I know this is up to each individual person, that doesn't, that doesn't discredit for me what James Daniels said or Jaleel Johnson or Mike Daniels or go down the list. And I think it's important to understand that there is what that racial bias is. And it's like Scott said, there's gray area there. Um, mm -hmm. I had a lot of conversations with a lot of guys off the record, a lot, some guys on the record. Adam Geddes was one that I had on the record. And you talked about the hair. That was a big one for, I think, these these reports and investigation studies, however we want to frame it. Um, when G Adam Geddes told me, you know, it sucked. You know, mm -hmm. Doyle would ride him about his hair, just wanting him to cut his dreads. And he just refused. And he said, I just dealt with it, you know, and I didn't let it bother me. And I didn't let it stop me from getting better as a football player. As a guy who graduated, was a two-star and ended up having an NFL career. Um, but those are the types of bias things. Because then you look at a guy like Robert Gallagher, mm -hmm. who's got long hair, right. you know, and he didn't get ridden by Doyle. So that, to me, illustrates a racial bias. And there were other aspects like that in the program and that's what it was did it escalate to the point of using the n-word or calling people dumb black guys that's what this case is about that's more what this case is about trying to, to you know did it go that far and at least where we stand right now it looks like it didn't go that far but we'll see we'll see how these have you it's hard to predict what's going to happen in sports or in the legal system. <laughs> yes. No question. Yeah. And, and I, again, I'm not a lawyer. I, I've dealt with 
you know, the, these kind of cases, but I, there are other ones that I've been very, very surprised with the outcome. Um, you know, and and I agree with you on those regard those regards. I think there are there's always there needs to be an element of listening, not big me, little you. And I think that seems to be the case more so now than then, which was things like whether it's wearing hats or hoodies and the and the earrings, you know, earrings, tattoos. Um, you know, the individuality needs to be you know is was a major factor in that and. Uh, whether, you know, even music and, and stuff like that, which is, it all sounds so trivial, but it's really important because it's about and allowing one, yeah, right. It's about allowing one culture to exist to the detriment of another culture in some ways, whereas allow it all to kind of meld together. And, um, and I think, you know, and it does work the other way. I mean, that one conversation I had a, a while ago, I wrote about it when I was with the Gazette, so it tells you how long ago it was, was when I talked to Robert Smith. And, you know, he described kind of the the, the transition uh, a young African-American person, let alone player, has come into a, a, a white town like Iowa City and and how different it is. And, every, you know, if you're, especially if you're a man, everybody thinks you're an athlete and just the, you know, what people are watching you do. But then, you know, the other thing is you also have to understand what the culture is like there that maybe in one part of the country, you could walk into a convenience store. You use this, not me, but you walk into a convenience store talking really loud and it's no big deal, but you do it here. Everybody's looking like, oh my God, what are you doing? And you raise your voice. And it's just, those are the things that everybody's got to learn more about one another. So therefore there's not a, you know, you, you eliminate some of that, you know, that issue. There's always going to be some, but, but I think overall, it feels like a much more welcoming environment over there. Um, and I think that there needs to be more done. Obviously, we can all disagree or disagree on certain aspects, whether it's the, the former player council, whether it needs to be intact in, in or re, redone or not. Um, I, I think in some ways, though, it's, it's, you know, it's always healthy to have this discussion. And I think they're in a much better place regardless than what they were two and a half years ago. And ultimately, Scott, we'll find out, find out down the road. Sometimes it's hard, and Kirk has even said this, when guys are in the program to really reflect on your experience, it happens five or 10 years down the road. So I think guys that are in this transitional period from what happened in 2020, now we're, what, three years removed from that? Mm-hmm. You know, and another five, 10 years down the road, catching up with some of these guys like Kayvon Merriweather or whoever and say, mm-hmm. you know, what was that experience really like? How much did you guys grow? Was it a better um, environment? Was the culture better? Things like that. And you and I have said from the beginning of this, because we were doing this podcast back way early, back around that time, um, that really you just, what I think everybody should want from the coaches to the fans, to the players, to the administrator, everybody want this to be a better experience for the players. And ultimately, is that's is, if it's going, if we're going to move positively over, you know, from where they were going forward, let's make it a good experience. I think what we saw with Kayvon Merriweather and Logan Lee this summer going to Selma together, and I, I got, I've got working, still working on a story on that, and. You know, 
talking to Logan Lee about that, a guy from small town Illinois going with a guy from Detroit to see, you know, history. Those are the types of things that I don't know if that would have happened prior to this, but are happening now. And that's all positive stuff. And I think it leads to, hey, we're cool, man. We're the same. We're we're in this together. We're mm-hmm. on equal footing here. And that's the most important thing. Of course. It's a better understanding. You know, I mean, you know, when you think about it, what's one of the, the greatest brotherhood stories of Iowa football history? It's Abdul Hodge and Chad Greenway, two players from completely different worlds who came together and now we're like brothers. And that was 20 years ago. That was 20 years ago. They played up until, what, 2005 together, and they still regard each other that way. That's that's one of the greatest stories in Iowa sports history, just how that worked. And I think right now you look at this and that's what these things can do. And if, if there's an appreciation for it. And and so it's it's a daily process. And, you know, the, the unfortunate part is that playing status, uh, injuries, they all kind of enter that mental field about how you feel about your experience. I mean, if you didn't play or you played very little and you thought you were better than somebody else who beat you out or, or you got hurt a lot and you felt kind of isolated, those are those things will impact how you feel about this program. It just, you know, it, just, it's, it doesn't matter, you know. So I think in some ways, you know, you, that's why you have to be careful, but you can, because everybody's experience is different. Um, but I think you also have to be cognizant that there are factors and motivators that that you have to be, you know, pay attention to to make sure that it's at least welcoming. You're not going to get everybody's not getting the same desired result, but if you have the same desired opportunity, then I think your program is in a much better place. Yeah, and I think the, um, like you said, the welcoming part. When guys show up on campus now, they're not being torn down. Mm-hmm. to the studs and then try to be rebuilt. I don't think that was a good practice. And I think for any race or religion yeah, or right. any, anything, that was just not a good approach. And now they're doing it the right way and helping guys get acclimated, no matter where they're coming from, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's coming from a different background and a different situation. So it needs to be welcoming. It is for just general students. Why wouldn't it be for football? Right. I mean, you think about some of this stuff with any other sport on campus that doesn't really deal with that. Maybe wrestling a little bit. Probably. Yeah, they're different. But they're, you know, they're cowboys. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, you think of, you know, I always remember, I go back to a story I heard a couple of years ago from Marvin McNutt. And it was just how, um, you know, he came up from St. Louis. He was a quarterback. His first day there, he was having a bad day throwing the ball and in a, what, seven on seven or whatever. And Doyle calls, blows the whistle, gets in his face, starts screaming, you think you're some hot shot from St. Louis. You don't know shit, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, getting torn down like that your first day is not a way to boost confidence. It's not a way to make you feel better. And because then you turn it around and now that, you know, I, I have well, one graduate and one still in college and you you're on the cusp of that too and you think about dropping off your kids at college and hoping for a great experience and that first day of going either to classes or in their case workouts or you know meeting people in the dorms and you hope that it's just you know they're going to have the time of your life and then all of a sudden you hear yeah it was okay yeah you know and and what happened well (laughs) this, this coach reamed me for no good reason really first day I mean that's not his responsibility. And if I was the quarterback coach, I'd be really pissed off. 
because how dare you tell my quarterback, you know, he's having a bad day, you know, let me do that. So I think that's, that's the environment. And I think if there's anybody and he has been compensated for that, that has been the rock star in this, it's Raymond Braithwaite because he has changed the entire mental, you know, the entire focus or emotional output of the, of the weight room, but you have not seen it change at all in the way they play or even in the, in some of the markers they've hit because they're still setting records in there. So I, I think right now um, through this case, once it's dismissed, I anticipate that being the case. I could be wrong, but I think then you could kind of go forward without that, you know, and everybody could kind of exhale, take a look yep. forward, and then what's next and do it in, in good fashion. Demanding without being degrading. Kirk said that early on, and that's still the case, and I think it's important, and I think that's what they've they found that sweet spot. So we'll see where this court case goes from here. Want to let folks know. Support for the podcast comes from Systems Unlimited, celebrating 50 years of providing services to people living with disabilities and mental health needs throughout East Central Iowa. A list of their services and upcoming events can be found at sui.org. Well, if you didn't want to hear about the legalese, hopefully you fast forwarded through that part of the podcast. We'll actually talk about football, um, (laughs) which is probably what most people want to talk about anyway uh, we're going to do um, have some fun here with our 10 most indispensable players for the Hawkeyes for 2022 but wanted to hit on a couple notes and what Scott and I are hearing uh, what's going on um, looks like position that really couldn't handle more injuries is dealing with injuries again at wide receiver Scott Nico Regani a little banged up Keegan Johnson back uh, working his way back um, after being out for a long time. So that's really, to me, kind of the story of camp so far is that wide receiver position. We've talked about it before. Yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, you know, you just, now they're kind of scraping, <laughs> you know, hoping that, uh, you know, even beyond the scholarship guys, that somebody like a uh, a walk-on can come up and have a nice season. And that's not at all the position you want to be in in this league. You know, you just can't do that and hope to succeed. Now, if they can keep Arlen Bruce healthy, and I think you should put him in bubble tape in every practice. Double bubble wrap. Yeah, double bubble wrap. Um, don't let him ever touch a kickoff or a punt. Um, hope that Keegan stays healthy, um, that maybe, you know, you're doing a lot of finger crossing. You know, Virginia's back at a decent time. Brody Brecht returns. Maybe Jacob Bostic. Um, comes together that one of the walk-ons comes in. I mean, this team needs, absolutely needs three for sure, because they play a lot of 11 personnel, but it really needs about five to be available. And uh, you could get by with four they have, and sometimes they've done well there, but um, two or three is, is kind of a, a problematic number because somebody's going to run a long route. They're going to be a little bit winded and they need to take play off or two. Now you can compensate that by going with two tight ends or two tight ends and a fullback, um, you know, 22 personnel or 12 personnel. And, and uh, that's, yeah, but you want to have the ability, you don't want personnel to dictate exactly in that way, dictate what you do on offense. And so I think they've got to, they've got to stay healthy in that position or it's, 
yeah, they're they're going to struggle against some teams that maybe they should beat decisively because then they'll just load the box, they'll stop the run, and then you got to beat them through the air, and it's hard to do that when you're so depleted that they can uh, they can shape their coverage based on your lack of uh, experience and and athletic ability. Yeah, on a related note, we finally heard from Charlie Jones at the end of last week uh, on his reasonings for. Mm-hmm. His reason reasons for uh, transferring to Purdue this off season, and obviously that impacted the room quite a bit because he probably would have been <laughs> getting a whole lot of run right now for Iowa. Um, so he basically confirmed confirmed Scott what we thought. He's going to a place where he thinks he can be featured more as a wide receiver. He he's shown what he can do as a return man and. Uh, it all makes sense to me. I know it's it's going to be – it just adds fuel to this growing and budding rivalry. Um, but that – that Iowa-Purdue was always kind of a, okay, that's a cool cool game, contrast the styles. But it's getting more juice as we move along here. Yeah, you throw this. And, you know, Tracy was one thing. He's from Indiana. He, he, you know, whether it was his fault or the team's fault, they, he wasn't – whether he wasn't used properly or he just wasn't good enough. And it seems like Purdue is going to use him how he wanted to be used. Yeah. I mean, the Swiss army knife out of the, you know, and then, but if that doesn't fit Iowa, you can't, I mean, if they're, so that one, I agree with you. That makes sense. Yeah. The the Charlie Jones one to me is a little bit more, and I think there's more, um, maybe a little bit more motivation for the Iowa players with this Mm -hmm. one. Yeah, for sure. Cause it does feel like, I mean, this, in football terms, it's kind of a betrayal. You went through the spring. <laughs> yeah. You went through the whole spring. You were the guy. You were a guy who was out there in every single play. You graduated from Iowa. You've been there. You were a walk-on. They gave you a scholarship. You uh, won Big Ten kick return specialist of the year. You were going to be an important piece to this offense. And then to walk away and go to a rival to beat Iowa last year, um, yeah, that – that's betrayal to me. I mean, you know, now I, I don't fault it on a personal level because, you know, going from what, I think he had, I want to say 37 targets last year. I mean, that's not going to get you in the NFL to, it could be double or triple that even, it's, you know, at Purdue because they throw the ball so much. I understand that, you know, but there's, there's a reason why there was no conference transfers for so long. And this really, this this opens it up. This picks a scab, and it it still festers. So, yeah, I mean, when <laughs> when Riley Moss was like, no comment, I knew that they were they were a little sore on it. The, the offensive players were a little more like, oh, you know, I understand, blah blah blah. But the defensive players were, you know, and, and I can understand that too because they they went against them in practice, but they don't have the close relationships in a lot of cases that that they do with uh, with one another. Yep, now they'll have to cover. So um, hopefully uh, the uh, motivation and the being inspired doesn't interfere with mm-hmm. your fundamentals and doing the right thing. But yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I get you, there's different lenses that you look at it from, you know, through, um, you know, from Iowa coaches to Iowa players to Purdue to whatever. I think if you look at it from just as objectively as you can, it's a guy who went to Buffalo. He wasn't, and he said this on the interview the other day. 
he wasn't recruited by Purdue or Iowa coming out of high school. He went to Buffalo, proved himself there to the point where he then bet on himself to walk on at Iowa, proved himself there, and then he felt what was best for him was to go to Purdue to then bet on himself again. So I don't begrudge the guy. I mean, that's part of, you know, there are coaches that switch jobs for what they feel is a better situation. There's There are athletic directors that do that all over the place, assistant coaches, you know, that's part of the game. And I think we have to adjust our mindset a little bit more that with the transfer portal, that players are going to do things like this. Sure. And, you know, and look, let's face it, Iowa had, um, took one from Michigan, <laughs> you know, yeah. Oliver Martin, who then went to Nebraska and nobody really got upset about that necessarily. And uh, they could have used Oliver Martin. This year, <laughs> He's in Dublin uh, right now. Yeah, right. I mean, he fell upward on that one. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's another story, man. I think <laughs> this whole maybe maybe next year Iowa gets a, a good trip if they continue to play Northwestern in this West Division. But, you know, I, I guess I, I look at it through his lens. There's nothing wrong here. He wants to he wants to go to the pros. He wants to showcase his ability. And this gives him a more of a chance than he would if he got three targets a game. And he made two catches and uh, only one every three to four games. He gets an opportunity to do something with the ball in his hands as opposed to Purdue, where every time he gets the ball, it's, it's on place. It's, you know, there's room to run. He can use his athletic ability. So I think there's a really a, you know, but at the same time, I think Iowa players have a right to be pissed off. I mean, this guy was their teammate, their brother. You know, it's a family. We always hear that. And it is because they sweat and bleed and, and whatever together. And you just walked away from us after the spring to go to uh, to Purdue. So I think that's why in the future, there probably will be a rule. And and uh, the, the ADs seem to agree that there will be a very mu- a much shorter window on interconference transfers. Like <laughs> you get to do it from the end of the fall season through maybe the, the official signing day in February that you're not going to be able to do this because, you know, Charlie Jones heightens everybody's awareness, but just wait till a impact player at Michigan goes to Ohio state or vice versa. Then it, then it don't go. Then, then the, then the rule will happen like that. Yep. You're either with us or you against us. That's kind of how the players view it. And I, I totally get that. Um, looks like Gavin Williams is back. Yeah, um, that's good for Iowa. More depth at running back is always good because that's a position that takes a, a pounding, uh, a lot of miles on the tires. Want uh, as many guys healthy there. Uh, the true freshmen, uh, Patterson and Johnson have played well. Uh, we saw LaShawn Williams look like he's taken a step forward. So that's all good. It's good to have Gavin back, too, because I yeah. think he's one of the team's top leaders. So real important to get him back. Very mature young man. He feels like a, a pro. And there are some players where you just talk to them and you can just kind of sense that that they're, they they have an efficacy that's just beyond their years. And I think Gavin Williams is in that boat. And, you know, by all accounts, it sounds like all four running backs have had a really nice um, fall. I, I was very, very impressed with LaShawn Williams in that open practice. I thought, okay, he looks the part to me. It's If he needs to be number one, I'm fine with that. I don't think that's a – an issue 
And Caleb Johnson's had, it sounds like a fantastic fall camp and, and Patterson's done a nice job. And, um, you know, and we've seen enough from Gavin Williams to know that he's capable of it too. So uh, overall, I think if there was one where he position group where he felt like, okay, they're, they're actually coming along. They're looking pretty good. It's running back. I don't have any issues there at all with that group. Yep. And uh, we haven't had any exposure um, and public comments since August 13th. So 12 days ago. So our knowledge is kind of limited. We're kind of what you guys are trying to, you know, connect the dots from Phil, you know, the little, nuggets they sent out with photo galleries and video and then talking to people that are willing to give us a little information here or there but we will not uh we will not get uh face to face with those guys again until tuesday uh this next tuesday before the game so um we'll get have a lot of updates obviously next week when we talk and we'll do uh we'll preview our game by game and maybe take a look at the big 10 overall and where we see iowa fitting into the picture there um but wanted to have a little bit of fun today with our uh, 10 most indispensable Hawkeyes for 2022. And I, I like to write this too. When I write these, I always say this is not saying that everybody else sucks and nobody mm-hmm. else is important. These are just guys we feel like are key to a success, keys to su- a successful season. There's just no doubt that Iowa needs these guys, the vast majority at least, to play really well this year to be able to reach uh, your expectations as fans who sold out every home game. Uh, so obviously your expectations are high. And then obviously this team, we're talking to guys uh, that said, you know, we won the West last year. The next step is winning the entire thing. So they obviously have high, high expectations too. Uh, I'll let you start, Scott. You give me, let's go 10 to 1. Uh, one being, uh, most valuable player preseason, I guess is how we can frame it, but, uh, certainly 10 is important as well. Yeah. Most indispensable because this is not certainly not an order that I put together based on best player. What I did was I basically said, if you remove this player, it's, it's a bigger struggle, um, for this team in certain spots. And number 10 for me is a guy who may not be there in week one, and that's Mason Richmond. Um, you know, a guy who started 11 games or was it 12 games? I'm sorry. A left tackle last year as a freshman. He had a lot of ups and downs like you would expect with a redshirt freshman, but really seemed to be coming along. Um, and he hasn't practiced for a few weeks. Um, we wouldn't know specifics all the time because they not, not only have the photo galleries is one thing, but they haven't posted any since Saturday. So we Those are, are really a little less through. frequent than they've been in the past. aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So there haven't been any since Saturday. So I, I don't think that's a Brian Ray being lazy. Cause I know Brian, nope. I, I know he's the opposite of lazy. So I think that there was probably some, Hey, why don't you not do that for a while? And, you know, because of injuries or what have you, but Mason Richmond is an ascending player, whether he ends up as a left tackle for out his career or just for this year until Caden Proctor comes. Um, I, I think if you remove him, um, Jack Plum better have a great year or at least a great week because it could be, uh, I, I think it's a step down to whoever takes over for him. So he's, he's my number 10. My number 10 is also an offensive lineman and related to this is Connor Colby, um, uh, who, okay. who knows, maybe he's the best left tackle with Richmond out. Um, yeah. But 
we don't know. We haven't seen photos since Saturday. We don't know what's going on here, but, um, you know, he and Richmond um, are probably the most seasoned and high ceiling guys mm-hmm. on this current uh, offensive line, at least based on what we've seen so far. Um, and I really thought he got better as the season went on last year. Um, and with Richmond out, it even it even magnifies his importance to this mm-hmm. team. And uh, I think tackle is more of his natural position. And I'm excited to see what he can do out there at right tackle this season. Um, and his development. I mean, there's a kid that, you know, is out of high school, you know, 15 months ago, he was graduating high school. And now he's, you know, a seasoned veteran on this offensive line with experience. And that's, mm-hmm. that's, that tells you a lot of where Iowa is right now in terms of development and the progress and trying to put everybody healthy, um, everybody developing. This has the makings of kind of the foundation of a really good offensive line over the next several years, but guys need to stay healthy. And I think Connor Colby uh, is a key part of that. Yeah, no question. I have him higher on the list. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I, I, you know, right now they they've got to keep health. They they they're really two to me two goals, probably for the first month is keeping people healthy and finding some chemistry and cohesion up front uh, when it comes to the offensive line because you have a new center, you're you're having moving parts. You're going to have moving parts because they're going to insert somebody in for a different series here, a different series there. Um, but they need to find who's going to be. Who's number one? Who's going to be their five? Who's going to be where do they fit best and, and how they progress moving forward? And, and uh, you know, and I, I can kind of go in my, I can talk about Connor now or I can wait and <laughs> reveal him where I have him. But no, uh, hit, hit us with number nine for you. All right. Number nine for me. And if he was, if I was listing best players, he might be number one, but I have number nine and that's Jack Campbell. Um, he's a difference maker. He's an extra heartbeat on defense. He tips the field when he's out there and indispensable is as true as all get out for me uh, by the way he plays. The reason why he's nine and not one or whatever is because if he had to step away and that would not be a good thing, but if he did, they, you know, a Seth Benson could step in for him. Um, Jacobs could slide inside and play the will or Jay Higgins could play and they really like him too. And I'm not saying that they could play at exactly the same level because I don't think that's the case, but I don't think it would be a complete disaster um, if he did have to step away because he, you know, had to go to the bathroom for a series in, a, in the second quarter, like Jaleel Johnson did at Northwest. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he, he ran in the side. And I, I was Jaleel Johnson at Northwestern, and and afterwards, you know, I'm like, okay, you had to leave the field. Was something wrong or whatever? He just looks at me, gave me that look, like I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'm like enough said. You didn't have to. T- I know exactly what you had to do because uh, well, nature places, calls. You know, there, there are places on the field you can do something else, but anyway. Um, yeah, that's why I got him at number nine. Um, but if you again, if this was the best player list, he'd probably be my number one. Yeah, I wrote this up on uh, I published mine on August 10th, so we've had oh, some, wow. a while since I've done this. So, 
I re- I reserve the right to contradict myself <laughs> and yeah. question my picks here. But I don't question my number nine um, because um, we all we talk about how important special teams are and having you know guys that can help there and help on defense. And I've got Terry Roberts at number oh, nine, great. and I think that might uh, raise some eyebrows, but. He'll probably start week one with Jamari Harris out. So having, you know, that third cornerback is really important. And he's a dynamo on special teams. And uh, I'm not saying he couldn't be replaced, but seniors and experienced guys that know what they're doing are really important in this program. And Terry Roberts is one of those guys. And he, he'd start on a lot of teams, but he's in a loaded defensive backfield. And he's going to play plenty on defense, and he's going to, and when special when there are big special teams plays, there there is a good chance that he's going to be involved. No, I think with Terry, this is by the way that was a great call. I should have had him on my list because I agree wholeheartedly with him because the way he plays on special teams, it was. I mean, there's a reason why I think uh, you know uh, Corey Taylor didn't have as many uh, or he had way too many touchbacks late in the year and a lot. And at least a few were not having a guy like Terry Roberts, who's as good at covering kicks as any player I've seen, honestly. Um, you know, Sean Prater may have been close, but not nearly as good. And, um, and I, you know, one thing I wonder about is because he lost his position last year because of, uh, of uh, injury um, after he replaced Riley. I wonder now, I mean, because Jamari Harris was out, you know, part of this summer and, and if Terry Roberts goes out and has a nice game, is he going to be in place there? And Jamari's going to be the guy coming off the bench. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised. And then the the other part is I could see Terry Roberts being a sixth year guy too. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it would probably behoove him because we all anticipate Riley Moss probably going to the NFL after this year, that maybe uh, this is his opportunity to be a starter. And, you know, in a Roberts-Harris combination in 2023 wouldn't be so bad, I don't think. Number eight, and this one may be a little bit of a wild card, but I kind of like it there, and that's Lucas Van Ness, and I wrote about him earlier uh, this week, and, you know, that he's the Hercules, and he's the player that, uh, and you look at him, and you're like, man, <laughs> if I was in college and I looked like you, I'd wear everything tight, super tight, but, um, but you, you can't lessen his impact. There, the thing is, he's the, in Big Ten terms, he's second in, on sacks per snap returning to the Big Ten. He did that as a freshman. And since 2014, only George Karloftis had more sacks as a freshman. And that was seven and a half to the Van Ness's seven. He is, and he did that inside, which I would say somewhat is out of position. He wasn't really big enough to, to play that role, but yet he maximized his his ability there. I, I expect him to play a lot outside, you know, whether he starts or it's Joe Evans who starts and he comes in, he's going to play a lot. And I think in some ways uh, he, he is going to impact this game. So you take him away, even though there's a really good, um, you know, there's a really, you know, good deep depth along the defensive line. I still think he's got pass rush ability that the others don't. And I, I think that's something that you can't always replicate through the course of the season. No doubt. Looking forward to seeing year two for that kid. Um, 
I, I uh, enjoyed doing a podcast with him before uh, he got here. And uh, really good kid, um, great story, kind of yeah. late, late bloomer, and uh, he's blooming. Uh, number eight for me is Justin Jacobs uh, at Leo yeah. linebacker. Um, there is, I do feel better about the depth at linebacker that um, after the spring, when a lot of those backups, Carson Share and Jay Higgins that Doc mentioned, uh, you know, I think those guys have taken steps forward and, and maybe the drop off wouldn't be as big. But as you said, I think Justin Jacobs' ability to play multiple linebacker positions play them really well and his ability to allow Iowa to play more four three because of his athleticism at the Leo spot. Um, to me, I'm not sure there's another guy like him on the roster. Um, so I, that's why I, I have him at eight. And uh, I think he's going to have a breakout year where he opens a lot more eyes this year. I think it started last year, but I think he's ready to take the next step. A lot of NFL guys love him. They think he's a he's a really good prospect at the next level. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of I would say you know, Kelvin Bell. When I talked to him about Jacobs in the very beginning, you know, he said he reminds him a lot of Christian Kirksey, and I think that's a really fair comparison. Except I think he might be a better uh, he might have a better starter kit, and Kirksey's still in the NFL start. So after eight years, so um, Jacobs has a all world athletic ability at that position. He's gotten bigger, obviously he's grown, you know, 40 pounds in in an inch or two. Um, He can do a lot of things. He can play in the box. He can play outside, Uh, you know, the ability to, Hey, you're, you're in four, three, but they're going four wide in the shotgun. You're not going to feel like, Oh shoot. You know, we're, we should be in cash. And said we got him on the field. You're all right. Because we saw him, uh, one of the biggest, most impactful plays he made last year to me was on a third down play when he broke up a pass tended for Charlie Kolar of yep. the Iowa State. And I'm like, that's an NFL tight end. He's a good player. One of the yep. best tight ends in the country. And he stuck with him. So, and then of course, you know, forced a fumble at the goal line that, that uh, went in the end zone. So now I feel you on this one. I think he's, he can be a really impactful player. And talking to Seth Wallace, at media day, and I'll probably write this more um, once the depth chart is revealed, uh, is that he anticipates more interchangeability among their linebackers, that it's not going to be just he's the Leo and they're going to go cash and it's just Benson and um, and Campbell inside and that, okay, well, maybe we need to have Jacobs inside. And because I even brought up the example of like Ohio State, which he was kind of like, well, I don't want to use a specific team. But I'm like, but you got you have that that guy, you know, Smith and Jigba out there in the slot. You might want to have a defensive back on him. And then you might want to have a really athletic linebacker. And he's like, you know, that's probably the route we'll go more often. So, and that's, it's kind of a bummer for when you have that role, when you have three good, really good linebackers, but then you've got to play your best players at their most advantageous situations. And maybe Benson will play more in the slug it out games, but, um, but Jacobs is going to see the field a lot more than he did last year. I think. Agreed. A lot right. more versatility and experience at that position will allow them to be more interchangeable. Number mm-hmm. seven, Scott. I'm going with Sam Laporta. And I debated about moving him up from there, but um, I like Luke Lachey a lot, and and maybe I'll talk myself into that he should be higher than this. But 
I like Luke Lachey a lot, but, but Sam Laporte is, in my opinion, one of the top five for sure tight ends in the country. Um, you know, had what the third most receptions, I think, of any tight end in Iowa history for a single season. He's already got more than all, all the, almost all the big names except for Marv Cook in his career. Uh, he's going to be a real vital part of this team. And, and yes, I should have him higher than this on the list I can see. <laughs> because I, I think especially with the injuries at wide receiver, you know, we saw him split out some. That may be a situation with it that they do a little more often. Um, but I think he's pretty damn indispensable. And, and yes, I would have him much higher than seven if I was to re-rank this list. Yeah, it's uh, – it's. I, I think people should realize that these are 10 and you can kind of, I think you kind of come up with your guys and then they're, in, you know, they're, they're, it's fluid. You can kind of move them around a little bit, depending on the day and the hour, you kind of have different yeah. ideas. So, and yeah. I, at seven, I have Seth Benson. Um, okay. And there could be tomorrow. I could have Jacobs ahead of Benson, but yeah. today, you know, whenever I wrote this, I just, the experience there, the, um, I thought he he got he got he's gotten better like almost every game. He just his understanding what he lacks maybe in, you know from a physical standpoint he understands the game. He may have you know on that defense he may, he might be the most knowledgeable guy. I watched him during the spring practice, Scott, when uh, he was sidelined with injury, and just almost like an assistant coach for Seth Wallace in terms of you know, coaching some of the, you know, the more inexperienced linebackers during that, you know, the open spring practice. And I, I think I put a lot of weight on that. I put a lot of weight on guys that are leaders and impactful at their positions based on uh, what they know, because that's what this whole thing is about, right? It's development. And if there are guys on the roster that can help develop and also be really productive as players, I give bonus points for that. For sure. Um, and that's that's what makes this Jacobs debate, you know, kind of difficult, along with other players, is that this trio is as good to me as anything since Morris, Kitchens, and Kirksey, and I think better. So I think with, with Benson, he's um, – I would love to have him out there 24-7. You yeah. know, if, if – now I know it's a, it's a bang-him-up position and it would be hard to keep him around for an extra year if he doesn't want to, but – He'd be another sick, great sixth-year guy. Yeah. Because you put him and Higgins inside, you feel pretty good about that for next year. It's not Jack Campbell. It's probably not Justin Jacobs, who I think we both expect has a good year. He's uh, hearing his name on the, at least probably the second day yeah. of the NFL draft. But man, you could you could definitely do worse than having Seth Benson back for another year. I think he's he's better than a lot of the the third wheels on the linebacking core we've seen over the last mm, several years. Let's just go that way. No question. Um, All right. Number six. Number six. This is strange because I would never put this position here um, in most years, but I'm going with Spencer Petras. And the reason why I have him here now instead of one or two with the latest, as usual, is that I think we saw what the, the team could do or is capable of with Alex Padilla. And I don't think the drop-off was as extreme as with Nate Stanley, who I would have put number one every year, or C.J. Beathard every year, or, you know, Ricky Stanzi every year. Because I think, the, you know, Spencer has a, a knowledge of the offense, no question. 
more so than most players I've ever seen. Uh, but the production is not the same as the knowledge right now. And maybe he has a great senior year and he's a great senior story. But I do think in some ways that if Alex Padilla was supposed to come in, I'm not sure that the, there's a drop off. I'm not, it, it may even be an improvement. It could be, it could, it could be the same. But that's why I have him at six because I think, yes, he's probably the unquestioned leader of the offense. But I don't know that the production would change much if he left it. Yeah, I, if I had to do this over again, I'd probably put Spencer on my list. But spoiler, he is not on my list. And that was before okay. Kids Day. So okay. I didn't get a chance to see uh, the progress. I liked what I saw and probably would have him on here. But I'm not switching my list. Now, so. uh, number six for me is somebody we've already discussed. And that's Mason Richmond. So we won't okay. need to go over that again. I have him up here because... Uh, I think he's important, um, and he's the experienced left tackle, and without him, there's going to be adjustments. Yeah, absolutely, like we, uh, like we discussed, and I think, uh, you know, I have another line that you already discussed, too, but it's up a little bit. Um, number five for you, Scott. Number five, uh, Cooper DeGene, and I think I've seen a lot out of Cooper DeGene in a very short period of time. The rhetoric seems to follow it even more so, and uh, <clears throat> losing – Dane Belton at cash is really significant. But when you have Cooper DeGene, who may be even more physically impressive, um, that that, and there's the potential for a wash at that role. And it could really help when you're that big and physical, it could help in run defense. And then, then the one thing that he brings that other caches haven't is his returnability. And what we've seen with losing a Charlie Jones is a need for, um, returns in the return game, and he's capable of doing that. So I have him as my number five. I could be talked up, you know, lower than that, but I think he he also presents some matchup abilities for Phil Parker and the boys. That's a good one. Um, I at five have Kayvon Merriweather again, okay. leadership, uh, experience in that secondary, uh, which lost some pieces. You talked about Belton. Um, you know, Jack Kerner and Hankins all leaving. I think Kayvon, and I think Kayvon's another guy that's getting better and should have his best season this this fall. And uh, important part, and uh, a guy I think uh, uh, is indispensable, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> no question. You know, and he he's somebody I think we can agree off the field that is, uh, you know, very, very impressive. I mean, we were both in, in extreme agreement about him winning the inaugural Duke Slayer Golden Gavel Award, and he's done nothing but continue to impress with everything he does since then. And I think he is he is going to be a role model for future players and future human beings in this area and wherever he goes, if he's in the NFL or he's just he's going to do well in life. I think uh, he's he's an extraordinary young man. Um, number four, Connor Colby. And along the lines of Mason Richmond, um, the one thing I think with Connor is I think he has the most upside out of any of the current linemen. I think he could potentially be a left tackle, right tackle, guard either spot. I think he could be, if I was to say, who do I think is going to be the highest draft pick out of these guys? I think it's Connor. I mean, no player ever has started, no true freshman has ever started more games up front 
in a season than Connor Colby in 11 last year. And yes, it was a, it was a grind. It was a struggle. He had to go get some pretty good defensive linemen, but he fought through it. And whether that he never plays left tackle, he's always a right tackle, maybe a guard at the next level. I think he's uh, got a bright, bright future on the offensive line. And I think you remove him. It is a downshift significantly to whoever comes after him. Yeah, no question. And uh, I agree with everything you said there on Connor. I think, uh, I think the sky's the limit for him. And uh, I think the ceiling is very, very high. Four for me is Riley Moss. Um, he's, uh, he's the returning defensive back of the year. <laughs> conference. I'll leave it at that. Well, I have him a little higher. (laughs) And so I will, uh, I guess I'll talk more about him when it comes to the spot because it's uh, a significant one. (laughs) All right. Hit me where you're four. Uh, My number three now. Three. Who'd you have at four? Oh, you had a Colby. That's right. Yeah. I have Tori Taylor at number three. And it's rare that I would ever put a punter on this list, but I think what Tory Taylor does, especially if he can knock down a few of those touchbacks is. I have him at three too. So we have uh, our first agreement. Oh, good. good. (laughs) I, you know, he can, he generates, he forces offenses to go one more first down against your defense every single time he's out there and the way he penned people back. He was the all-star rock star against Iowa state and Penn state last year. And I'm, it's hard to say, I'm not sure if they would have won or not, but I think, especially Penn State, I think he made a major impact in that game. And if you can, you can force the opponent to go 85 yards instead of, you know, 73 yards, that is so significant in this sport. And if you can back them up inside the 10 against that defense, you know, you're going to get the ball at midfield. So I I think that's, uh, he, he is so indispensable because I think the drop-off for him to probably Nick Phelps may be the biggest drop-off of any player on this list. Yeah, no question. And that's, for those listening, that's part of the factor here. If you don't know, sometimes you know what's – like you know what Terry Roberts is behind Moss and Harris, or if you want to put Harris and Roberts on the same line, you know, you know kind of what you have there. You don't know at some of these positions what's next. Even though yeah. we think, you know, Jay Higgins and some of the backup linebackers could fill in admirably, we don't know that till we see it, and that's part of it as well. We know we got a chance to see what Alex Padilla could do last year. Um, so there's kind of a there, – there's a knowledge based on uh, what we've seen if Spencer – something were to happen to Spencer Petras, whether it be – injury or poor performance, we have an idea of what Alex Padilla could do. That brings us to our top two for each of us with Tory Taylor being number three for both of us. And that is, that's Iowa football right there, having the punter number three, but uh, deservedly so. He's, uh, you know, Iowa hasn't had a lot of success with putting punters in the NFL, surprisingly. Um, but it's really tough. I talked to – who did I talk to? I can't remember. One of the former kickers uh, about, you know, if they were surprised they didn't make the NFL. And they're like, listen, there's only – teams carry one guy. Mm-hmm. And that's the same for punter. For the most part, carry one guy. 
on the 53. So it's hard, man. Those jobs are as hard as any to get. Absolutely. Because, and then it's a position where a guy can kick till he's 40. Right. You know, there's not a, there are very few injuries and it's not one that's overly scrutinized. Not as much as like kicker is because right. kicker is a point position. Um, this is one where, you know, you have a shank or you average 42 and everybody else is at 45. It's not real noticeable. It's, you know, you hope for the best, but it's not, it, it's not as impactful even as it is in college, I don't think. Um, if you have a great one, that's one thing. But, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of difference between the number, say, four or five in, uh, punter in the NFL and number 28. Um, you do know that in, in field goal kicking because, well, we're, we're fantasy football players. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. Got my draft Sunday. Yeah, I had one uh, Saturday last Saturday. I got another one next week, and those will be the two that I play in. I'm woefully uh, un- unprepared, but I've done that before. And sometimes that works out better when I'm unprepared rather than studying so much. And I, o- I overthink it. So yeah. I'm hopefully being unprepared works for me this year. I am. I'm a guy who likes to take at, at minimum one rookie, if not two. So I, I think that at a skill position, you know, especially running, I think yeah. running backs can come in and boom, you know, I felt pretty good the one year where I took Adrian Peterson. And it seemed <laughs> that worked out well. Yeah. Another year, Chris Johnson, you know, so yeah. I, yeah. I I'm hoping Brees Hall is that guy this year. I really <laughs> am hoping that he is that guy this year for multiple reasons. Uh, <laughs> yes. you know? mm-hmm. But uh, probably got the Hawkeye, you know, I'm not going to draft any Hawkeyes on fantasy football uh, this one anyway. Uh, my number two, you know, you, you could very easily argue is number one, and that's Arlen Bruce. And uh, the reason why is not only do I think he's a very good player and an ascending player who can do multiple things. And in fact, he made, he made Tyrone Tracy expendable. Let's face it. He's better than Tyrone Tracy was at all those things. He's a better receiver. He's more dynamic as a returner. He's more dynamic as a, with the ball in his hands. Um, And uh, that's probably unfortunate for, for Tyrone because I thought he was a great young man, but, but I think, emphasizing that two of those Tyrone and and Charlie Jones, like we talked about earlier are both with Purdue now and the injuries that have happened to wide receiver and Arlen Bruce isn't one of them. You really need to keep him healthy and because he's the only one that you feel like you can, um, that can go out there and be a a representative big 10 receiver that who is healthy, I should say fully healthy. So I have him number two, um, but I could argue uh, he needs to go upward from there. Yeah, that's a good one. And he is not on my list, um, but one that certainly is deserving of that. And I think both of us have guys that probably aren't on here that we could argue and debate about being on here. So it's uh, it's subjective for sure. And it's Obviously. kind of uh, it's kind of and this one here you had lower on the list. Uh, two for me is Sam Laporte. Um, okay. I just think he's the best player on the offense right now. And um, I, I'm with you. I really like Luke Lachey. I think Johnny Jacuzzi could be good. <laughs> um, uh, liked what I saw from Addison Ostranga. Yeah. Um, Stilianos has, you know, done well in college football already. And he's got a bit more of a learning curve that maybe I expected here, it looks like. But 
a guy who the light could go on for him soon anyway. So I, there's depth at this position, but thinking about this team without Sam Laporta on offense to me is really, really scary. Um, so that's why I have him at, at number two. And I think he's a pretty important leader on this offense too. Um, and uh, I expect him to have that breakout year this year. I think it's, he's been really good already. Uh, but I think he can have, provided there's some threat on the outside from the receivers and that position can come through and, and Laporte is not facing double and triple teams all the time, I think he can have a really good year. And I think uh, I think he's certainly an NFL player. As I mentioned, I had him at seven and I thought, oh, my God. And once I started talking, I'm like, okay. I we could that. do another podcast in another hour, and I would have all these jumbled up probably. Yeah, <laughs> I would I would change a few for sure. And I think Terry Roberts, he really opened my eyes on that one. I should have had him. Yeah, I should have had Arlen Bruce on there. But yeah, and such is life. <laughs> I, hope, I don't think anybody's going to hold us to this, but Sam Laporta should have been at one or two for me. No question. He's, he's as indispensable as it gets because, you know, uh, my rationale when I was – I just jotted down names and I started doing the, okay, one, two, whatever yeah. it was. I'm like, well, they got a good backup, but, you know, they do play two tight end quite a bit. About 30, last year was a little over 30% of the time. Um, when Hawkinson and Fant were there, it was 63%. And I would expect it to be somewhere in the middle of that, probably closer to 50 this year, maybe even higher than that. Um, yeah, indispensable doesn't go far enough to describe what he can, means to this team. And uh because he's going to get attract a lot of attention too in the coverage until the guys outside, whether they're walk-ons or they're Keegan you know, Johnson, they're going to have to um, they're going to have to prove something so it enables Sam Laporte to open up. So I, I don't fault that at all, and I really wish I would have put him that high. Well, I wish I had some type of drum roll sound effect or some like trumpets or something to <laughs> ring in. The, our number one picks here, but I don't. So let's just go ahead and throw number one out there. All right. My number one is Riley Moss. And um, last year, you know, when you had Matt Hankins and you thought it was survivable when he went out before the Purdue game, I thought that was survivable. It wasn't. He not, not to say that he would have shut down David Bell. I don't think anybody with a Tiger Hawk ever will. Um, that's probably at the NFL too. But I, I think in some ways it it prevented that. It really yeah. hurt the team that Agreed. he wasn't there. And and um defending big as you mentioned earlier, uh defending Big Ten player of the year, uh, defensive back of the year, so underrated at that position group and you know has incredible speed really a, a, a you know a good tackler you know fought through you know a really difficult injury a torn pcl that's not easy you know especially for a running position like that so i think in uh, if you remove him and i'm not saying that you know harris and roberts wouldn't be a good tandem but moss brings another element because he's got swagger and in droves and he's the type of guy that quarterbacks will try to pick on until they realize it's too late to do that. And then he'll shape coverage the other way. So I really think he's a, uh, he's a guy kind of like Jack Campbell in some ways tips the field. And uh, so that's why I've got Moss there at number one. 
great pick. And I could see iterations of this where I would have him number one. And uh, yeah, he's uh, he's got that swagger. And there are just some guys that have a knack for making big plays. Um, Tyler Sash was one. Mm, um, oh yeah, I think Micah Hyde was one. There are yeah. different guys that threw, and we could go through a list of them. But I think Riley Moss is just one of those guys. He makes big plays. He makes you know important plays. Um, you know, like every cornerback, he gets beat t- at times. Uh, but he does a heck of a lot more good than bad. And uh, who knows? Maybe he ends up factoring into this return game, making him even more valuable this season. Yeah, I saw him. He was on some of the videos. He was back with the returners. And, you know, it makes perfect sense to have a defensive back return punts, I think for sure, because they're already on the field. You know, there's no interchangeable. And if there's somebody who, you know, there's a fake or something, then you have somebody with tackling ability and closure and knows how to, to handle it. But but I also think, you know, I mean, we saw with Desmond King, it was, you know, again, you have a toughness and, you know, defensive backs have that a little bit more. Um, I don't know if you've watched Hard Knocks at all. This, this I have. Season. I caught up on the latest episode last night. I missed it on Tuesday. But, yeah, it's yeah. been fun. I'm, I'm rooting for the Lions this year. I am, too. And uh, I, I look at Dan Campbell and I think, what what player players would thrive <laughs> for Iowa for him? And Riley Moss is one of the couple that I look at. And I'm like, man, he would be so – he would fit in that element. He'd be the kind of guy on every special team. He'd be a, you know, a defensive back for him, and he'd be somebody that Campbell would just be like, dude, you're one of my guys. <laughs> Whoever so, that comedian was that stood up there and compared yeah. him to Hulk Hogan, that was perfect. I know. It's <laughs> a great episode. I, I really have enjoyed it this year. I thought, you know, there are some teams where you can tell that it's an intrusion. They don't really like it. Right. They just deal with it. Um, but I think, you know, Campbell and, and the Lions and just kind of where they are, and, and the, you know, they're, they're, they're such a beloved team, but they're so different devoid of any success I know. And, and having a coach like him just makes it so fascinating yeah no question and guys like Deuce Staley and Aaron Glenn and those guys oh, yeah. are all all really I, those guys you look at and hey potential head coaches down the road no question Aaron Glenn got interviewed uh was by, was by the Saints or the Broncos I can't remember which but yeah they're for sure in there and you know you, you've got to hand it to the Lions that They've they've done a lot of different things, whether it's uh, you know through their minority hiring to what you know they have a, a general manager who you know and they also have, you know some of their coaches they they've really branched out and and Campbell is just the guy that he's a truly I don't know if you can say this anymore he's a man's man I mean he <laughs> walks in a room you're like all right there's there's a there's a cowboy. You know? <laughs> There's Rip Wheeler. If, if it was uh, a <laughs> yeah, hopefully we get a little bit more TJ Hawkinson moving forward. Maybe some yeah. Matt Nelson, some more Hawkeye flavor to this moving forward. Yeah. We've, we've kind of seen who the stars are right now, and uh, but hopefully, well, I've seen these before where you know other guys start to get introduced as the as the season goes on. So hopefully we see that with the Iowa guys, give a little more Iowa flavor. Yeah, I thought TJ'd have a big. I really did. Yeah. All right. My number one, and I don't think this is going to be a surprise to anybody if they've been counting down or following my list. Uh, Jack Campbell's number one for me. Um, I do think 
I agree with you that I think Seth Benson could move into that spot. And there are guys behind uh, the three starters that could fill the void and, and do well. Um, but I just, as good as Jack has been, I have a feeling that this year is going to be really like open, even eyes that haven't been opened before because from a physical standpoint at middle linebacker, I think he's the most gifted physical middle linebacker that Kirk Ferentz has had. And that is no knock on, you know, go through the list. Josie Jewell, Pat Anger, Abdul Hodge, go down the list. I just think from a total physical athletic standpoint, he's a unicorn at that position. And the next phase for him, the next step for him is the understand of defenses, what offenses are trying to do. If he doesn't make a play, it's usually because he's out of position because the offense has done something to him or gotten him in a spot that's advantageous to it. Um, But I have a feeling with as dedicated as he is and just the progression we've seen with him, that this is going to be a superstar season for him. Um, and I don't know if he has as many tackles as he did last year, Scott. Maybe he doesn't need to. Statistically, it's going to be tough to top what he did last year. Um, but I think he can have even a greater impact than he had last year, even without maybe the statistical uh, uh, highlights that he put up last year. I think I just think a lot of the kid uh, got the mm-hmm. chance to see him in high school and just have watched him from his junior year of high school all the way to now and. Um, the ceiling to me is just enormous. Oh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Now, you know, the, re- the reason why I had him low was indispensable, but as I said then, yeah. he's the best player on the team. Um, and, when you know, what's fascinating is when you think about it, he is a true senior. You yep. know, he, he played as a freshman, and he only really played special teams as a freshman. You know, he And he was hurt. I mean, he went through a rough first year. And second year, he got mono and missed the first three yep. games of, of an eight-game season. And by the end of the year, he was kind of coming on strong. And then last year, uh, you know, was a bang-up guy. But, you know, he's still – you think about it, you know, he'd still be a redshirt sophomore, according to, um, you know, a lot of the – you know, right. what he would have done. Had he redshirted. And, and frankly, you know, the 2020 year kind of redshirted everybody, especially him, because he only played in four or five games. I, I do think, uh, and he didn't even really start, I recall. I think it was more of a Benson and Nick Neiman thing. But, uh, you know, I, I think this is, uh, he has the potential to not only be an All-American, you know, because Josie certainly was. And Pat Anger was second-team All-American. And Abdul Hodge was, what is, two-time first-team All-Big Ten. And another year he was, like, second-team because there's Laurinaitis. Uh, but I think he he has a chance to really say, maybe alongside Larry Station is the best linebacker in Iowa history. And he's way bigger than Larry Station yeah. was, you know, and uh, I, I think he's got a chance to be the best player in the Big Ten, which obviously people picked him as, as such, and maybe the best defensive player in the country who doesn't sack the quarterback uh, because Will Anderson or yeah. Jalen Carter is going to get that kind of love. So, I'm there a thousand percent with you as far as a guy who tips the field on every single play because everybody's got to be cognizant of where he lines up. And if he can kind of master, as you said, 
the mental part, which he was pretty good, but he got, he got put out of place sometimes. His physical skills are off the charts because he he can play like Brian Urlacher. Now, is it, I'm not going to compare him to Brian yet, but, you know, because he can run backwards and, and deflect passes. He did that. I think it was against Maryland. He deflected a pass that went mm-hmm. to Kerner, you know, picked up a, you know, he, he forced a fumble that led to a touchback against one of the, the either Colorado State or Kent State. Um, scored, pick six, scored on a fumble. Just does so many things well. And, and this year I'd be anxious to see. I think there's a chance that he might, when you see a team playing two tight ends, he might play more on the edge, you know, because they feel like they can make the edge stronger with him maybe going head up with a tight end than, than say somebody like Jacobs. So that is uh, that's a definite person who tips the field. Yeah, the hit on Sean Clifford was pretty impactful as well. <laughs> and I think they could do it, like you said, on the edge. I think they could they may do more with him. Uh, rush, rushing the passer this year too to get a little bit more pressure um, in that regard. So I'll be interested to see how they use him. And that's kind of the balance of this list, right, Scott? Indispensable, best, most valuable. It's There's a lot of wiggle room here. And like we talked about, you know, tomorrow I could have Moss ahead of Campbell um, and Laporta or Laporta number one because Iowa needs as many offensive pieces as – I mean, I could probably make an argument for, you know, I could make an argument probably for Tory Taylor being number one, yeah. you know. So, um, but this just get, hopefully gives listeners an idea of kind of where we, how we view some of these guys. Um, like I didn't have Van Ness and Bruce on my list, but I certainly should and could. Um, but I should have a list probably. I could just have like 1A or guys tied in all these spots, you know, and right. probably go out to 15 or 20. Yeah, and I, I think based on depth, they're all pretty indispensable, you know, <laughs> yeah. for a team like Iowa. Now, you know, like the secondary is a weird angle because, you know, at first blush, you can say, well, you know, and I can look at myself and say this is like, well, why do you have Moss so high when you do have two capable corners? And, uh, well, it's because he's a different kind of corner and, and the others are good, but they benefited from playing opposite him. And uh, I think in – you know, and then what comes at four and five? You know, yes, Fernandez, is he ready? Is TJ Hall ready? I'm not sure. Maybe yeah. they are, you know, and they, they certainly looked good. But looking good is different than playing against Xavier Hutchinson in week two. And, uh, and then likewise, um, you know, it's safety. You know, <laughs> Xavier Wampa, I, I want to see him play out there at some point. Um, will he get that chance? I don't know, but... You know, there, there are a couple of scrutinized positions, too, that we just haven't had a chance to watch. So I, I kind of wonder how that's going to unfold. But, but overall, I don't think there's anything either one of us should hang our head in shame over on this. On these no, I think we acknowledged the really important players on this team. And that's, again, as I said at the top, that's not to discredit or, or downplay anybody else. Um, because there, are, there, there will be guys we probably haven't mentioned or – maybe didn't emphasize as much that will emerge this year. It's yeah. just football. There's injuries. There are guys that get better as the season goes on uh, that may not be there now on August 25th, but come October have really made strides and are ready to get on the field. Maybe that's Xavier Lampa. We don't know. Um, and that's what makes this fun, right, Scott? I mean, every year, especially that's why I love college football because it's new guys, um, guys that are back in different roles, uh, guys that have 
de- that develop at different rates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who knows? So I- I'm hoping like heck that Spencer Petrus just puts it together and just shuts everybody up that, that have, that have ridden. I mean, you see it, you mention anything that he's up for the Johnny Unitas award and then people make fun of him and mm-hmm. it's not everybody, but there's that element out there that, you know, takes shots at guys uh, that haven't performed yet or haven't been consistent yet. But I, we could have another podcast on guys that were inconsistent at points of their career that put mm-hmm. it all together later in their careers. And it really, left here um in in a really good light and i'm hoping there are guys like that this year and jack plums another yeah yeah you know we, we've well i wrote about this earlier this week i did this little debate of you know kind of calling uh or i guess maybe it was a week and a half ago which was the the good story can can spencer yeah. petrus become a good story and uh, we've seen it every year with offensive linemen especially, but then also other positions where, man, he really put it all together his last year. He stayed healthy, went out there, competed, was maybe his all-conference and second team, or maybe he was just a good quality starter. But that really hasn't happened at quarterback. I mean, uh, at least a multi-year starting quarterback. Brad Banks, of course, it did. But but that's that's also 20 years ago. <laughs> I know. I, mean, I had a lot less gray hair then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think we all did. did you have fewer any, pounds. I don't think you had any kids. <laughs> no. You had three, you know? No, and I was in much better physical condition. And yeah. I didn't have a beard. And I had more <laughs> hair and it wasn't this great. Yeah, right. But, you know, I mean, when, and then that's one of the things that I think we all fall victim to and that cover in Iowa and a lot of the fans do because you've had the same coach for that long is everything gets compared into this circle. Like, yeah. that you know, well, you know, because I remember even bringing that up about Kirk and, or about, you know, could Spencer Peep just finally be a good senior quarterback story? And somebody's like, well, Brad Banks says a lot. And I'm like, Brad Banks was 20 years ago. I mean, he's in his forties now. I mean, yeah. you know, that is a long, long time ago. And I mean, we're talking about senior stories and, and I mean, I kind of went through the myth part of that, and you know, Hey, is, you know, they don't always, they don't all regress. In fact, they really don't regress. It's quarterbacks. Yeah. You know, like Ricky Stanzi had great numbers. The defense gave up touchdowns or, or field goals in the last five minutes of all five of their losses. That was why they lost. It wasn't their offense. Um, you know, likewise, CJ Beathard, remember, that was my, that's my big fear about this year is the wide receivers that year were not good enough. Not even close to good enough. And if you have the same situation this year, you're not going to be good enough either. You might, you're going to go to a bowl game. You're going to win seven, eight games, but that's not going to be the year you want. And uh, in Stanley, you know, kind of tread water, but he also lost two first round tight ends. You know, it's not that he's regressing, it's like the players around him changed. So I, I think in some ways we always, you know, it's, oh, they always regress. Well, the team doesn't perform as well. But, but I think this might be the opposite of that. And I'm not saying that he's going to have some breakout performance where he's all Big Ten. But, you know, what if, you know, is it unreasonable to think that he can't have 17 touchdowns and seven interceptions? You know, maybe hit 62% of his passes. That's a great year for him. And I think, and, and what frustrates me, and, and this is regarding him in particular, is we've seen it over the years. And I really wish 
people, the snarky people would just calm down a little bit, especially going into this year, because I don't want to call anybody out necessarily, but damn, sometimes they're fans that eat their own. And it, it always seems to happen at quarterback and in-state basketball player. They seem yeah. to get Good the point. scrutiny that you just like, guys, lay the F off it. Jordan Bohannon's a good player. You ate Josh Oldsby alive. Adam Woodbury's a good player. He just doesn't score that much. You know, every quarterback has gotten scrutiny. So it's like, lighten up. Enjoy your team. Like your team. It's a good team. Spencer Peters is a great player. He's a great kid. He could have left. You know, maybe he's going to have, you know, I, I bring this up that, and some people just kind of go, Ooh. He, you know, he didn't go to South Padre Island for spring break. He went to New Jersey. <laughs> to work out he didn't go to uh um you know right after he graduated college he didn't go on some great trip overseas he went to new jersey to work out you know he went to the manning academy to get better to learn he asked questions he tried to do good things and and he's trying his best and he's working his ass off and i think um give the guy a little credit has he performed well not really but i think he's putting in all the effort to say this guy really wants to win and succeed and he cares about this university. And I think, you know, if it's time to back off, it's time to give him a chance. And support if it him. doesn't work out, yeah, cheer Just him. support him. Mm-hmm. You know, because we know what's going to happen on third down and it's third and six and he overthrows somebody high and people are going to start booing. And it's like, God, why? He's a kid. You know, he's out there. He's playing his ass off. He's hard. You know, sometimes it's just that that's frustrating to me that I really wish back off, support your team, cheer for them. The same people who idolize some of the quarterbacks in the past. I mean, when talking about a Bohannon, look at Gordy's numbers. Yeah. Look at Gordy's numbers. Yeah, they went to the Rose Bowl, but it wasn't because of Gordy. It wasn't, you know, it was because of the defense. And, and I think let's, let's just take it down a notch and appreciate what you have a little bit. As somebody who's lived in New Jersey, Scott, I don't know why anybody would pick an island over island life over uh, Newark <laughs> <laughs> or, or East Orange. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm partial to Camden myself. <laughs> Camden, Jersey, yes. Yeah. <laughs> South, South Jersey, but. No Wagner. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of good athletes yeah. at Camden. So yeah. I. I remember uh, when I worked at a newspaper in South Jersey, going into Camden to cover basketball and having to go through a metal detector. Um, it's uh, it's definitely better than Island Life, no doubt about it. <laughs> but yeah. uh, looking forward to some good stories this year. Looking forward to next week. We finally get into game week. It's been a long, long off season. I'm really looking forward. I just look forward to the you know the whole story how it unfolds, the whole story of what the season is going to be. It's just, to me, it's it's one of the more enjoyable parts of the job is just seeing everything we've talked about for the last eight months, now getting to see it. I know. And I feel like, I feel like I've been cheated out of football with all the realignment and media rights yeah. negotiations and writing about that and stuff. And I just, I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to see this team. And, and I, I wrote today about, you know, five truths or myths. And one that pops to my head almost immediately is, does this team have a, a right to feel disrespected? And I agree wholeheartedly it does. 
It won 10 games last year. It has one of the best defenses in the country. It has a senior returning quarterback, three-year starter. And it went to the, the championship game in its own conference. It's ranked as high as two last year, and it's not ranked now. So, therefore, to me, yeah, the chips should be on the shoulder. And I'm not going to begrudge him that at all. I mean, I get tired, and I don't know if you do or not, but of all the talk about the haters and nobody believed in me. And so that, that I kind of – that's eye-rolling to me most of the time. Yeah. But in this case, I'm all about that. I think Iowa has every right to go, nobody believes in us. Everybody's disrespecting us. And take it from there. They have every right in the world to believe that this year. I put, uh, and I agree with you, and I put my money where my mouth is on that yesterday, placing a bet on over seven and a half wins, which I think is a layup. Mm -hmm. And I picked Iowa to win the West at plus 500. They're, what, the third or fourth pick to win the West? I think it's silly. But, yeah. And I'm not saying they're going to win it, but I'll take it at plus 500 right. any day of the week. So, um, yeah, I think I have high expectations this year. Who knows? You know, there are so many unpredictable aspects of the sport. Um, and you don't know. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. We don't know how good other teams in the West are going to be or, mm. you know, what teams look like when they happen to pop up on Iowa's schedule. But I feel pretty good about this team. Mm-hmm. I do, too. I I, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I don't think they, I don't know if Kirk realized just kind of the sentiment about the team. You know, I remember in, in Indian, I want to say Chicago all the time. For I wish. Days. Yeah, I know me too. But in <laughs> Indianapolis, when he's just like, man, it must be bad out there. You know, I think Chad asked a question about the, just the, you know, you think that this offense is going to be better. He's like, man, it must be bad out there. They have a terrible reputation when it comes to offense, and it is spilled over to everything they deal with with the defense, but um, their 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 entire team. But I think this team is set to have a really good year. I think they have a good chemistry. It's just a matter of can they keep everybody healthy to enjoy it? Because yeah, if they can't throw to down the field, it's going to be a grind, and it's going to be hard to win the really close games if you can't make field stretching plays but that said this defense is going to keep them in every game you know Ohio State might be the exception maybe yeah one out of the two times but uh, yeah but I think they're going to win the West too hopefully Scott and I are right and we uh we'll we'll be back next week to give our game by game predictions and take a look at the West how it shapes up and just Iowa overall in the Big Ten how things uh how things look going into the season. And we'll uh, look ahead to South Dakota state a little bit to uh, preview that game. So looking forward to it. We're into the season now. So these are going to be even more fun to do. Want to thank everybody for listening. Thank you to the sponsors, Wild Rose Casino, Edward Jones, Systems Unlimited, Street Maintenance, and our new sponsor, Ariza Asian Restaurant and Bar here in Iowa City. Check all those folks out. We appreciate their support. We appreciate, again, you guys listening. And we'll be back to talk to you next week. Say goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Scott.